Thank you so much and very welcome. It's wonderful to see so many people here um, during this sunny day. And of course, a warm welcome to Dr. Goodall to Stockholm and Sweden. I know that you're traveling all the time, so, so we're very, very happy that you could find a little spot in your calendar <laughs> to come here. Um, Matthias, you travel a lot as well, but you live in Sweden, actually. Yes. Most of the time. Um, <clears throat> let me start with a very simple question. How did this collaboration come about with this book project? Should I? Yeah, okay. Um, it actually, something that we started to talk about some years ago, um, while we actually lectured here in Stockholm, um, that it would be nice to do something together with our combined experiences and uh, uh, to use the vast experience of, of, uh, of from, from the world of Jane um, uh, and my photography uh, and to try to make some kind of an interactive um, attempt. I mean, most I've made a number of coffee table books and there uh, and we all both of us have made books, but to make a book that you can actually as a as a reader as as a as sort of the um, the person owning the book, you can actually contribute yourself. We thought that that would be a wonderful thing in a time where things are so readily just put away and forgotten. We hope that this is something that can be a reminder, a constant reminder of the beauty of life and things to celebrate, from a garden calendar to recipes to the brimful world of miracles that we both love. So it's, uh, it was sort of that notion that brought this to life, I guess. And that's that's your attitude to the project as well. We don't have any microphone. Now on it's here. on. I think. Hello, hello. Now that we're you. <laughs> that's much better. That's right. Somebody turned it off. They. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yes, because uh, if you have a perpetual calendar like this, uh, it means that you can a keep looking at the beautiful pictures, and secondly, that you can actually find out. Oh, you can add this is so-and-so's birthday and then you don't forget it. That, that means you have to keep looking at the book. And um, of course, I'm going to have to carry it 300 <laughs> days a year around the world. Maybe make a special paperback for me. Yeah. <laughs> but um, when the, the idea first began, Matthias wrote to me and he said, I want you to find 365 quotes. And I said, sorry, cut me out then. <laughs> well, we... we Quite a few we found, though, yes, and it uh, it really worked very nicely. Um, it's one a month, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I think what's really important um, from both of our perspectives uh, uh, is that we we're living at a time when we put immense pressure on the planet, and there's still so much to celebrate. And instead of being doomy and gloomy about it, we think that we can really uh, gear up towards a mind shift if we actually celebrate the remaining beauty uh, uh, in the world. So it's both very serious, it's not shying away from, from uh, the obstacles or the challenges, but it's uh, definitely also celebrating what we love, what we all love, I think. So. But can yes. I ask you, Dr. Goodall, uh, I mean, you started your work back in the 60s, focusing on chimpanzees speci specifically and, and their social life. 
And it seems to me that you today have a, a much, much broader perspective on sort of climate change, nature in total. How did that shift in your own focus come about? Well, the shift came in 1986. I began the chimps in 1960. 1986, I helped organize a conference to bring together the people who by then were studying chimps in different parts of Africa. And the purpose of it was to compare behaviors in different field sites. Uh, but it, we had a session on conservation, which was utterly shocking. So everyone showed slides, pictures of destructed, destroyed forests, and they gave figures about the number of chimps that were decreasing. And we also had a session on conditions in some captive situations. And I was absolutely haunted by our closest relatives in five foot by five foot cages in medical research labs. Mm. So that's what took me from Gombe onto the road. And then, of course, I was learning more and more about the problems we have inflicted on the planet. And it seemed important to go around raising people's awareness and giving a call to action. Mm. And setting up pro programs in Africa to help the people who were living in poverty in order to get their support in, in saving the habitat for the chimps. And all of this was costing money working in six African countries by then. And so what's the point of doing it if we're not encouraging young people to be better stewards than we've been? Mm. That was the start of our youth program. I see, I understand. And Matthias, it seems to me that you had a similar process. I mean, you started taking beautiful pictures, but you have been more and more involved and engaged in, in the climate change issues and problems. I, is that so? Yes, I think so. I mean, I, I started out as a young boy, honestly, uh, borrowing my father's camera. And, uh, and what drew me into that was trying to capture things that truly moved me. Mm. And, and as I got lucky and became a National Geographic photographer when I was 23, I... I it wasn't luck, it was skill. <laughs> <laughs> Pure luck. <laughs> yeah, but, but anyway, the, the, what, what really happened was that uh, it, it gave me so many references, because when you travel, when you see the world, you see juxtaposed to one another the incredible things that we, again, cherish, but also the horrendous impacts that we, yeah. through our anthropogenic success story inflict on the planet. So I, I felt at an early stage that if I only concentrate on merely the beauty, that it's itself important, I miss out on the, the true dynamics of life. So I started to pitch stories for National Geographic and to make books, for example, with Johan Rockström about the seriousness and the dilemmas. Uh, so yeah, it, it has definitely been a, a journey for me as well, where not just the climate change issue, but many of the issues, not least the loss of biodiversity, has been a main focus. Yeah. And they're all interrelated anyway. Uh, absolutely. You know. Yeah. Speaking of National Geographic, I know that last year was a new documentary on your life's work made by National Geographic. It hasn't been shown in Sweden yet, as far as I know, but we just talked about we could make some kind of... Uh, uh, showing of that uh, at a later date, and maybe have you talk about it. But it's uh, it's a fantastic. It seems to be a fantastic uh, documentary, and uh, it's a lot of filmed material from your time in Tanzania, isn't it? Nearly all. It was forgotten. They said it was lost. It wasn't lost. It was forgotten. It was material from my first husband, uh, the, the uh, filming he made, and 
the Geographic made two, at least two documentaries out of that, and then that was it. So the rest was filed away. Yeah. And this, okay. um, I, I think that uh, the film, the resulting film, is completely amazing. It's the best documentary of any made about me and the chimps that I've seen. And it would be really nice to find a cinema here and show it, which which Jengadal Institute were allowed to do. Are you coming back to us then? I won't be able to. (laughs) Even all next year my days are committed. Okay. We can have you on a Skype link or something. I can. Well, I can. I can send a video message. Yeah, Please that's don't good. don't give up so easily. No, no, no. You I have w- to I fight won't. for this. <laughs> yeah. No, it would, it would be in three years, and we want to do it now. <laughs> we'll set up a video link. It's, it's, we're going to fix that. Anyway, it's it's actually fantastic music also by Philip Glass, the fantastic composer in this uh, documentary. So. Anyway, but let me ask you uh, back to these serious issues that we are facing. This is a question to both of you. I mean, what are the main challenges to actually to get politicians and people with power to, to take the right decisions? Because obviously it's going the wrong way in many senses now. I mean, Trump and the climate contract and you know, all these things. What, 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 what can we do? What can you do? You have to start your turn. No, no, it's, I think it, you can start and I, okay, I can start. All right. <laughs> <laughs> There's obviously, um, I remember um, Eleanor Ostrom, the late uh, Nobel laureate in economy, she was asked the same question, what should be done? Is there one thing that's more important than other things? And she said, not just one magic wand or silver bullet will resolve these issues. It needs to be a, a cross-border, multidisciplinary effort. But again, if we forget that we're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction of species and where we readily destabilize the earth systems, that is, it's it's, uh, irreversible in many ways. If we lose the species, we lose the species. We cannot, however ingenious we are, however entrepreneurial, innovative we are, we lose species in the chain of life, the miracles of life. Um, so, and that that is very disturbing to me, e- extraordinarily disturbing. But I think that um, we need to have a sense of urgency, but at the same time, we need to applaud the new paradigm shift with more green circular economies, with companies realizing that they can actually make money doing sort of the right thing. So it's not about reversing into a golem cave, into the medieval some kind of medieval strategy. It's spearheading a new, uh, it's, it's a new era, but that needs to be within planetary boundaries uh, because same as usual is not good enough. Mm. What a good old what you say. Well, you know, there, there are certain things which have to be tackled which are extremely difficult to tackle because uh, I'm thinking, first of all, of corruption. We have corruption at so many levels. And in some countries, the fact that, that politicians can be basically bribed, mm. that big companies who are in it for the bottom line, the next shareholders meeting, or politicians who are in it because of the next election, they need to be voted in. And so they become corrupted. And I've seen this firsthand in many cases in the US. But in African countries, the corruption is, is just insidious. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is one of the really important things. Yeah. But the other one 
is, you know, why am I traveling 300 days a year? It's to try and build up a critical mass, a tipping point of young people who understand the problems and are empowered to take action and have a different kind of philosophy. Yeah. And I started this Roots and Shoots program in 1991 in Tanzania with 12 high school students. It's now in 100 countries around the world. We got about 150,000 groups, and a group can be a whole school. We've got members in kindergarten, university, everything in between. And the main message is for all of us. The main message is every day each one of us lives on this planet, we make some kind of impact. And we have a choice as to what kind of impact we will make. And we need to start thinking about the consequences of the small choices we make. What do we buy? What do we eat? What do we wear? And whose fault is it really that the big corporations have so much power? If people didn't buy their goods, if people, instead of just pointing fingers and saying, you're bad, you're doing terrible things, and everyone actually stopped buying their products, they'd soon change. And that's the beginning of what you're talking about. Big business has begun to see the writing on the wall. Mm. And politicians, they wouldn't, well, in democracies, <laughs> they wouldn't be in, in the position they're in if they weren't elected fairly by the people. Unfortunately, in some countries, the system is not quite like that. No. But even so, the people do have a voice in most countries. We were talking about that uh, yesterday, the fact that it's, there are so many tough issues to tackle that you don't easily get re-elected if you bring them up. So even if you're not a corrupt politician, you might still need to be s true to your party and you will not stick your head out because you will get chopped off if, you're, if you have any really tough agenda uh, or a true agenda of sustainability, which is, which is a problem even here in this country. Yeah, well, people say they want, you know, they want, they want sustainable and they're pointing, fing accusing fingers at governments that don't push that agenda. But if, if, <laughs> if the politician they've elected takes that tough stand you're talking about, um, that might mean, if, if that bill goes through, that it costs a few extra pennies for a certain product. Are the people going to stand by him who elected him to do just that? Or will they say, well, no, I never thought that it would actually um, be bad for me, so I'm not going to vote for him after all. So it's we as well. And it's, we're too fond of pointing fingers at the people who indeed are, are, are causing the harm. But we too must take responsibility. I mean, it sounds really fantastic. You say you have 150,000 groups of young people involved in this. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Uh, <clears throat> at the same time, I'm thinking we see a sort of trend in the whole world now going, unfortunately, in another direction where young people are attracted to nationalism and populism and fake news and all this. Do you, do you see any way to challenge that kind of value system? I mean, how do you challenge that kind of value system. Well, that's that's what Roots and Shoots is doing all the time. Yeah, okay. okay. And you, you know, mean, yeah. we're trying to we're, we're trying to get hold of people when they're young enough. Mm. And we find young people do influence their parents. Yeah. But you know, I have to rely on the youth leaders who are springing up because 
we started with high school students in 91. So many are now adults, uh, teachers and parents, and some are in politics and mm. some are lawyers. So, but you know, to get that critical mass of right-thinking young people, yeah. there's an awful lot more work to be done. <laughs> <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so. you can never do enough, I, I, I imagine. No. Because I, I personally think it's very scary that, for example, in America, uh, some climate skeptics doesn't even believe in science. They, they don't care what science says because they want it to be it's in another It's fake way. news anyway. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's a very scary attitude because <clears throat> it's, hard to, it's hard to challenge. Well, I, I just heard yesterday, I was telling Matthias that uh, the reason that ocean levels are rising uh, it's nothing to do with melting polar ice. It's because somewhere there are these um, activists, these bad people, throwing rocks into the sea. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> That's how crazy it is. That's how crazy it is. Um, <laughs> let me ask you something else. In fact, actually going back to your work on chimpanzees. Uh, you, I guess you you have worked with Franz de Waal. Or had oh, to I know him, yes. Yeah, you know him, yeah. And um, would you say, uh, I mean, that our knowledge of human cognition has increased so much during the last 10, 15, 20 years. I, is it the same with the, the research on chimpanzees? I mean, do we know much, much more today than we did just 20 years ago? Yeah, I think we know much more about chimpanzees and many other animals too. And uh, what are the main similarities between chimpanzees and humans, would you say, that we didn't believe in 20 years ago? I, uh, have si you found science it? didn't. Science no, didn't. Science didn't. I think but you did. <laughs> well, you know, greeting, kissing, embracing, holding hands, patting on the back, uh, angry, swaggering, shaking the fist, using and making tools. Um, they're capable of almost a kind of primitive war, and they're capable of love, compassion, and altruism. All of these things I was told uh, were unique to humans when I went to Cambridge University. And but you, I understand you believe that before it was accepted in science. Is that what you're saying? Totally, because even though the professors told me I'd done my study wrong, I hadn't been to college. Nobody told me that only humans had personalities, minds, and emotions, and I'd been taught that it wasn't true. That that we were not the only beings with personality, mind, and feeling. I've been taught by my dog. You can't have a dog, a cat, a rabbit, a horse, a pig, a bird, and not know that animals have personalities, minds, and emotions. It's not possible. No. Do you spe still spend time with chimpanzees? Once not really. I go no. and visit. But the research is going on. Yeah. A lot of students. Do you miss hanging out with them? <laughs> um... Well, I'm just so busy, I don't have time to think. Anyway, all the ones I knew and loved are gone. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's, that's of course true. I mean, they do live to be more than 60, but we began in 1960. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. How, old, how old can they be? Well, the oldest in captivity was 75. Mm -hmm. In Gombe, I think they don't live much more than 65, usually. Mm -hmm. I see. Matthias, when, when you work with... Uh, uh, especially photographing animals. Do you also have you also discovered animal behavior that you didn't really expect you would see all the time, really? And I think, how however you try to study and read and do your homework, uh, nature will surprise you. And especially if you're if you make yourself vulnerable and and open-minded, 
you, you, I mean, there's always great to have a backbone of, of uh, you study and you prepare, you prepare yourself, but being sort of open-minded in the actual encounter has kept me alive. That's one thing, because pe animals and people can feel aggression or high adrenaline, etc. especially animals. Mm. Um, so, but, but also it, it teaches, we talked about that also j just yesterday, that even snakes, as primitive as they uh, might be, uh, they too have a, 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 like a buffet of behaviors that once you know them, and you know a little bit about them, uh, you can actually read them and understand them. And they can also show acceptance. I had a Ferdelance, one of the most feared snakes in South America when I, when I was there in 91, that thanked me sort of for being nice or being just calm by crossing my elbow as I was lying in front of her on the ground on the rainforest floor after my long, 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 tedious photo session with her. Uh, punishing her with my flash units and everything, she basically said, "You know, you're 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 calm. You're not a threat. You're not a prey. You're not bad." And she just slithered over my elbow and disappeared. And I I felt so grateful. Come on, she was just really <laughs> vain, and she wanted her picture <laughs> in the Geographic. <laughs> that's what it was. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's uh, that's another interpretation, but 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 true. No, I mean, but but also, but then obviously. Uh, creatures like like our uh, our primates uh, and and uh, or whales, for example, that have uh, incredible cognitive uh, and and all sorts of uh, intelligent uh, behaviors, and uh, that's a totally different thing. But I'm just saying that even a snake, even a, a, a little bug, can show personality. Oh, something I didn't tell you yesterday when you told me that Ferdinand's story. Mm. Um, I have a wonderful Native American friend who grew up as a young man loving animals, just like me. And he began rescuing snakes. Uh, he lives in Oregon. And he had this big enclosure. And in the middle was a, a artificially heated rock where they could bask even in the winter. And there was one female who whose back was broken. She couldn't be released into the wild. She needed to be fed. And what she began to do when a snake came in really badly injured, she would lie alongside and move and gradually push that injured snake onto the... He saw it four times. That's amazing. It is. And I remember you, you, were, you talked about the dog always greeting the carp. Yes. That's another crazy story. Listen to this. You have this, to tell. This, this is, is a, a Labrador, <laughs> a golden lab, and uh, belonging to a friend of mine in the U.S. And there was also a, a pond for carp, you know, the big fish. And the biggest fish of all was called Homer. I don't remember the dog's name, actually, but the biggest <laughs> fish was Homer. And every single day, Homer went down to the pond and lay like this with his nose down towards the water. And Homer came along and the two communicated. The fish with his nose out of the water and Homer with his nose touching the water. So when the, when the owners moved, they said, well, we can't move until we've built a pond for Homer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you see. Yeah. And look up look up after this. Go and Google uh, not Picasso but Pig Casso. And you will be utterly amazed to see a pig rescued from slaughter who is so happy to paint on a canvas that's put on an easel 
will start to run, will take the brush in her mouth and um, paint. Hmm. So they say, is this the next pig Casso? Or maybe <laughs> Francis Bacon. That's <laughs> wonderful. Do, do look it up because it's really amazing. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. Um, we're actually going to take some p the audience questions. I have one last question while the audience creates some questions um, uh, that I want to ask first. <clears throat> Dr. Goodall, you're involved with something called a non the, the Non-Human Rights Project, right? Sort of. Could, okay, could you tell me something about it? Because it's like human rights, but for yeah. apes. Well, there there are uh, there's a large group of people, particularly in the U.S., but certainly not only, who are lawyers fighting mm. for the apes to get uh, rights that not exactly the same as human rights, but rights. Mm. And the reason that I don't fling myself into that, although I support it. Mm. Um, is that we have signed bills of human rights all over the place, and every single day human rights are violated yeah. all around the world. So I'm pushing for human responsibility. That's that's I can tell stories and get people to change their hearts. Mm. Okay, I don't I believe too much in this legal stuff. Mm. I don't know what you think. I mean, it's not going to hurt. And the fact that lawyers are willing to give pro bono time to something like that um, it says something in itself that's positive, but I can't, I can't get involved in the legal side of okay, it. Okay, I understand. Okay, so now we have the chance to have some questions from you. We have about ten minutes for that. Um, do we have any questions? Over yes, please. So hello, my name is uh, Lotta. And it's uh, wonderful to be here. Uh, Jane, you or Dr. Goodall. You Jane were, is fine. Jane. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you were speaking about Roots and Shoots, and uh, I think that's a wonderful organization. Uh, but I, I have never counted that in uh, here in Sweden. So uh, is, is something going on here? Are there any groups? I think here? you'll soon find a difference. Okay. Because the Jane Goodall Institute Sweden has legally existed for some time, but somehow it wasn't really organizing itself. But now there's a, a new group of young people, and they're absolutely passionate. Uh, we're looking to expand the board, as you and I talked about that yesterday. Roots and Shoots is a program of the Jane Goodall Institute. And anybody here who has children or grandchildren who's interested, if they contact the Jane Goodall Institute Sweden, we'll try and get it going. Because we can't say Sweden doesn't need it when all the other countries on the planet do. We sure need <laughs> that also. I have a children. Now I've kind of lost them to the computers. Or well, that's so. the trouble. Yeah. But there's a <laughs> website. The international website is rootsandshoots.org. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Okay, someone else? Here's one. Here, here. Oh, sorry. Here. Hi. Um, I had a question about the uh, Black Jaguar White Tiger Foundation. Have you heard about it? About what? Black Tiger 
um, White Jaguar Foundation in uh, Mexico. Have you heard about it? Not White Jaguar. Black Jaguar, Wild White Jaguar. Tiger. That's White <laughs> Tiger. Do you know about it? I, I've seen, uh, I, I've, I've come across a flow on Instagram, uh, I think, uh, but I, I don't know about their work, honestly. I don't. I okay. Tell us. Um, well, <laughs> <laughs> um, his name is, I think, Edward Sirio, mm -hmm. a former kind of rich dude who um, wanted to rescue big cats. And I was just wondering, I mean, if you ever had heard about it and what your opinion of this is, but since you haven't. <laughs> no, but I mean, fortunately there are so many, many people now coming up more and more and more and they care desperately about whether it's the big cats or it's parrots or it's uh, snakes or whatever. And these groups are springing up all over the world and that's really good news. Yeah, well, I just the problem is that he uses celebrities to come to his place and, you know, pet the cubs and take pictures with them. So he's kind of exploiting everything. And oh. he says that he's rescuing them, but, like, he oh, doesn't have a real good. plan for the mm -hmm. cubs. And when I tried to um, ask him, he just blocked me and called me a troll and, mm. yeah, like that. Oh, so that's, that's <laughs> why I wanted to ask if you knew about it. You want to comment on that? Um it's th there are there are great examples of people doing uh, fantastic uh, things for nature and for people and for, for and there are other examples who exploit mm. and yeah. there is in South Africa there's a lot of that lions are being bred so that people will pay to come and play with the cubs mm. and then the cubs are put out into large enclosures and trophy hunters go from America or other parts of the world to shoot them. And there are so-called rehabilitation centers for primates and for other animals where they actually never ever release the animals. So it's, it's a captive breeding process where they actually not very successfully spread them afterwards, which is also not great. Well, I did have another one, <laughs> if it's okay. <laughs> um, I've been to um, Indonesia, Borneo, and um, at a rescue center in uh, Ketapang with the IAR, the International Animal Rescue. Have you heard about that? Do you have some kind of collaboration or knowledge? Because that's a really good center and organization. I don't. International Animal Rescue. They... Um, their no. uh, main work is with orangutans, but they also have uh, slow lorises and uh, try to educate people uh, about it. And they're actually releasing the uh, orangutans after yeah. their rehabilitation. May I, I would just say that I think there is so, again, there's so many, um, it's like a vast, super huge smorgasbord of things to to uh, support and to gain information from in the world and uh, it makes it it's it's a great thing but it makes it also harder because there are um, all sorts of people out there and um, but I, I feel that it's still a great thing that the interest 
for conservation is is uh, is high, uh, but we, what we also need is is for politicians and uh, decision makers in society to realize that there are we need to have legislation to back it, uh, and uh, this, is, this is coming along, I guess, but too slowly. And also we need more collaboration and partnerships with the organizations instead of which they fight each other mm. for funds. Yep. So if they would work together, if we could put together all the people out there who care about uh, helping chimps, which is what we're trying to do, by the way, mm. um, then, you know, so much would be accomplished. But no, all these separate little groups with their own egos and, mm. and there's competition. Mm. It's very unfortunate, but that's the way we are. One more over here. Uh, hi. So I'm wondering, let's see if I can, uh, I just came up with a question, so if I can um, make myself clear. But uh, I'm wondering about, uh, as you both have seen a lot of animals in the wild and have interacted with a lot of animals, and I'm just curious what you think of, like, nature nurture like that kind of a thing with with animals overall like where where does the border between this is an animal which can live captive or captive but like pets and so on and then we also have like pit bulls and all of that controversy so I guess you have to answer because yeah. I couldn't hear it. Oh, oh sorry. Uh, uh, Jane couldn't. Yeah, I th I think the question is uh, where where can you draw the line? Uh, is it sort of more? If I understood correctly, if it's morally and ethically sort of sound to have pets, uh, or what? Where do you where you draw the line? Where where you should have pets or where you shouldn't have pets? Is that sort of the more bottom line? Uh, basically, yes, but more about like. Because we, there are a lot of people who want to have what are like basically wild animals as pets, but then there are also pets which we have, which uh, people, I mean, usually what I've experienced myself, the, per, the human is the problem, but there's still all of the problems with um, uh, like, so-called dangerous breeds of dogs and there are and of course also people who want to take in like foxes and such when it, com when it comes to having wild animals it's it should be very uh, sternly and firmly regulated of course and that should be avoided generally you if shouldn't it's have not wild animals as pets uh, absolutely uh, so that's but when it comes to the other territories or turfs with with the uh, dog breeds and everything it's it's far beyond uh my uh, expertise <laughs> so i couldn't really say much about it i've had two three dogs which i loved and uh, took well care of i think well and i think dogs are part of our history going way back way 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 back of course and i think do dogs and humans have a very special bond mm. so so would wolves and humans if people would give wolves the chance mm. And that's not very good here in Sweden, is it? No, or it's, Norway? Uh, it's uh, quite embarrassing. <laughs> it's very embarrassing. It's the same in the US. It's the same everywhere. Mm. 
Uh, I remember in India, this this wonderful conservationist came up to me and said, in his wonderful <laughs> Indian way, yeah, yeah, he yeah, said, yeah. "What is wrong with your country?" And I said, "What? What do you mean? What are you referring to? Why do you?" Why do you kill all the wolves? What is so special about wolves? Are you afraid of foxes as well? <laughs> he thought he, he thought it was ridiculous. They have tigers, they have foxes, they have bears, they have wolves, they have you know everything, cobras. So he was like, "What is going on?" <laughs> you start. You should start imitating people. It's very fun. No, no. It's a new career. <laughs> no, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're very soon going over to, to some book signing, but I have one last question for you both. And what, what are you most optimistic about for the next 20 years? I mean, when you really think about the situation in the world, where do you see the hope right now? So I've got five reasons for hope. Give us all. Very briefly. <laughs> one is the energy, commitment, dedication... Uh, and passion of young people once they know the problems and we empower them to take action. That's our Roots and Shoots program. Mm. And it, they are changing the world even as we speak. They're all choosing each group, a project help people, a project help animals, and a project help the environment. And at the same time, they're learning that it doesn't matter what color is our skin, what is our religion, what is our culture, how old we are, we're all one human family. That's what that's my biggest hope. And second is this extraordinary intellect that we have, and we are beginning to come up with technology that will help us to live in greater harmony. Not just the technology, though, but in our own lives, how we live each day. And third is the resilience of nature, so that places we've totally destroyed can be given another chance. Animals on the brink of extinction have been given another chance and in some cases are doing really well back in the wild. And finally, the indomitable human spirit, the people who tackle the seemingly impossible and won't give in. And that's why I carry Mr. H, in case any of you are wondering. Mr. H was given to me uh, by a man called Gary Horn. Uh, 28 years ago for my birthday, so he's 28 years old. Uh, and Gary Horn went blind when he was 21, decided for some odd reason to become a magician. And everybody said, but Gary, you can't be a, a magician if you're blind. And he said, well, I can try. The children don't know he's blind. And at the end, he'll tell them and say, things might go wrong in your life because we never know, but if they do, don't give up. There's always a way forward, and he does cross-country skiing, scuba diving, uh, skydiving. Oh. I mean, personally, I think jumping out of a plane is crazy anyway, <laughs> but to jump out into a pitch-black void is nothing short of insanity. Um, and so he's just taught himself to paint. He's done a book. You can get it on Amazon called Blind Artist, just a little book which he self-published, and in it, it's a portrait of Mr. H, whom he's never seen, only felt, and it's completely extraordinary. And he thought he was giving me a stuffed chimpanzee, but I made him hold a tail. <laughs> and he said, well, never mind, take him where you go, and you know I'm with you in spirit. So he's been with me to 63 countries, and he's very famous. <laughs> <laughs> Well, your hope. 
and Matthias. Sorry, uh, Matthias, I'd love to hear your, your hope for the future as well before we stop here. Well, I also believe in exactly what Jane just said, um, that we have the incredible capacity. I mean, we, we can look at chimpanzees or bonobos or orangutans or spinner dolphins or whales, any really smart organisms, pigs, pigs <laughs> dogs, uh, but they have a tough time um, s setting things straight that we have accomplished in a sort of negative way. But when we use our incredible um, capacity, our, 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 our uh, beautiful brain, uh, and we bridge the gap to our emotional, beautiful heart, <laughs> we can actually do magic. And we have done magic, and we can do magic, and we need to do magic at this very moment. And I believe that, and I believe not in uh, dystopics or, or uh, um, in, in uh, just concentrating on the negative things. There are so many things that can make us upset and sad, saddened by the reality we're in, but there's also so much, so much, so much to celebrate every single day, and that gives us power. That was a good ending, I think. Thank you so much for coming.